So Money, episode 26, Tom Corley. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Good day, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Ever wonder what it's like to go from being super rich, really rich, to penniless? Well, our guest today experienced all of that at the gentle age of nine when his family went from being multimillionaires to broke in just one night. His name is Tom Corley. He is a sought-after speaker, best-selling financial author, media contributor. He's also a certified public accountant, a certified financial planner, and he holds a master's degree in taxation. I met Tom a couple of years ago when I was doing a story at Yahoo where we were examining the way rich people think, act. Turns out Tom had done the study. He had looked at 233 wealthy Americans and 128 people living in poverty and observed and documented their daily activities. And from there, he discovered there is an immense difference between the habits of the wealthy and those of the poor. And during his research, he identified nearly 300 daily activities that separated the haves from the have-nots. From there, he wrote several books. The two most prominent are Rich Habits, The Daily Success Habits of Wealthy Individuals, and Rich Kids, How to Raise Our Children to Be Happy and Successful in Life. Three takeaways from this interview. One, a money habit that helps Tom and his family keep their expenses low. Two, Why buying stuff doesn't make us happy. And three, the best $100,000, yes, 100 grand that Tom ever spent. Here is Tom Corley. Tom Corley, welcome to So Money. Great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me on, Fanoush. It's a real honor. So this is actually the first time we've spoken in person, although we have collaborated for over a year now. I started to learn about you when I was at Yahoo hosting Financially Fit. And you sent me a pitch for your book at the time called Rich Habits. And I immediately wanted to feature you. I knew instantly that this was going to be popular with our audience. People who come to Yahoo always want to learn how the other half lives or the 1%, you know, and they want the secrets, they want the tricks, um, even if they're not things they can do overnight. But you had, I thought, was something different, which was you studied, you know, hundreds of people, um, wealthy people, and and studied habits, not so much like where they're investing their money or, you know, whether they went to Harvard or not, but really like when they get up in the morning, what they eat, um, what their consumption habits are. And I thought, you know, that's something different. I've never heard that before. And so we had you on the show. And I don't have to tell you, it was probably our most successful video to date. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I remember your, your producer uh, calling me and saying, oh, my gosh, we've got like uh, 1.5 million hits. Oh, we got 1.8 million hits. And then uh, it finished off at uh, 2.2 million, which is viral, you know. It is. And Dave Ramsey read the piece word for word on his radio show. 
That was so cool. That, that was I, That's a funny story because I came home that night. I was coming home late from a client, and I walked in the door at 930, and my wife said, some guy named Dave Ramsey has been trying to get a hold of you. And I said, I, I don't have any clients named Dave Ramsey. I, I don't know who, who you're talking about. <laughs> she said, no, he's some radio guy. And I almost passed out. And uh, two days later, I was on his show. But, yeah, he literally read verbatim right from your interview with me which I thought was pre- pretty cool. And you have a new book out, Rich Kids. Yeah, the Rich Kids is, is really, um, it's more of a meatier book, more meat to it, uh, because it includes hundreds of strategies and tips and tools, things that I uncovered in my research, but uh, it, I, it just wasn't right for Rich Habits, the book I, I initially wrote. So I was really trying to target parents, grandparents, teachers, and kids. Uh, because if I can get to them, then, you know, my, my big goal is to try and, you know, alter this poverty rate that we have and try and break this generational cycle of poverty. So that was why I wrote Rich Kids. It's really uh, uh, it's for the kids, really, the next generation. OK, so I want to learn more about you, Tom Corley. I mean, you've written a lot of great books and you speak and you advise clients I'm really curious to know some of your personal financial philosophies, ideas, failures, wins. So this is what we're going to dedicate the next uh, 20 minutes or so to. So are you ready? I am ready. Okay. So first question, we're going to get philosophical. What is a financial mantra or philosophy that you have that helps guide your financial decision making? Well, um, I've learned that uh, buying expensive stuff doesn't make you happy. And uh, what really makes you happy is doing something uh, that you love. Uh, do, you know, doing important stuff rather than buying expensive stuff. That makes you happy. So, uh, you know, people have this um, misunderstanding that they'll be happier if they have a bigger house or a nicer car. It doesn't do anything. You return right to your happiness baseline after a couple of weeks. So you have to do activity, actions, things that make you happier, the, the, the activities you, you engage in. So happiness baseline, what, is that the same for everybody? Everyone has a different baseline. It's, it's governed in part by your genetics. Uh, it's also governed, 10% of it is governed by your circumstances, your financial circumstances. But 40% of it is governed by your activities, the activities you engage in. So you're never going to get happier, much happier. You'll only be 10% happier buying stuff. You'll revert back to your baseline. But what will continue to make you happy is doing certain things that where you're pursuing some goals, a life dream, or your major purpose in life. So if you've got an extra $1,000, don't necessarily go buy, I don't know, the suit that you think is going to look awesome on you, but rather maybe a mini vacation. Identify a moment for you, a financial moment, a money memory that really uh, influenced how you think and act financially today. Well, well, that's an easy one. I, you know, I mentioned before that we were rich and then we were poor. And uh, so for most of my childhood, all the way through, and I guess age 23, till I got out of college, uh, 22, we were, you know, we were pretty much in poverty. But I, I do remember... I spent a year from the seventh grade to the eighth grade. I mowed lawns and I shoveled a lot of driveways. I had a bank that I shoveled their sidewalks and I I made money and I saved it. And in fact, I was 
I was so worried that somebody would ask me in my family because that's what happened. If anybody had money, uh, somebody found out about it and everybody took it from you. It not, it's not a bad thing. It's just we were poor and everybody had needs. So I actually stuffed $200 uh, into all of my trophies. I was a, a pretty good tennis player and swimmer and basketball player. So I had all these trophies. I had about 30 of them. And in thir- almost 30 of my trophies, I had $200 stashed away. Uh, and somehow, you know, my, my mom found out about it. And she said, you know, we need money to pay the bills. And uh, how could you be doing that? I felt terrible. If, you know, she wasn't trying to make me feel guilty. But um, I was saving that money because I wanted to throw myself a graduation party. Uh, and I, we lived in a very, even though we were poor, uh, we, before we were poor, we were rich and we lived in a, in a very expensive neighborhood and we, my dad did everything to keep us in that house, but I was surrounded by wealth. And so, um, you know, my friend John was having a big graduation party and I said, I want to have one too. So I saved up. Uh, and then when they found out about it, my family, they said, you know, they, they basically said, look, you know, we need the money. You can't. You can't have the graduation party. I wish we could. So I gave that money up. And I have to tell you, Farnoosh, that it had a very negative effect on me because my mindset was, why save? Somebody's just going to take the money from you anyway. And so uh, it took a lot of years before I, I broke out of that um, poverty habit, really. Uh, I, and, um, and, you know, really, this, the research that I did in in 2004 through 2009, that helped me really better understand, um, you know, good money habits. Uh, I had so many poverty habits when it came to money and I'm a CPA and a financial planner. So, and I I think a lot of, I think the lesson I took from that was that most of our money problems, you can probably go back to your childhood and find out that uh, that's where they took root. Wow. So you had to give all that money to your parents. What, I mean, was there, you had a big fight about it? I mean, how long did it take for you to really like, I don't know, just get over that? I mean, clearly it took you a while, but at that moment, um, take us there. Like, what was that back and forth like? Um, I didn't fight with them. Uh, I actually was was struggling with the guilt that I had $200 hidden in trophies uh, and that I just didn't turn it over to the family. So I had this guilt, first of all, before they even asked me for the money. Uh, but when they did ask me for the money, what I, th- the only emotion I can recall is anger uh, and disappointment because now I knew I was going to have my graduation party. And here, you know, I was, you know, in the eighth grade telling everybody about it. I had, you know, I had this big party, bro. And then I had to tell everybody that I wasn't going to throw the party because I didn't have the money. And um, and so I was embarrassment. That was an emotion. Anger was the main emotion. And I carried that anger with me. Really, I, my father died in June of, of 2013. And um, I, I, it was at that point that I reconciled my relationship with him and uh, forced myself to get over. It wasn't just the that wasn't the only two hundred dollars. You know, I. There were other incidents, but that was the one that I remember. So I had a lot of this anger and, you know, my father did the best he could. We had eight in our family. And so it wasn't easy for him. Uh, I just didn't, you know, I didn't put myself in his shoes. I should have. So, 
but I, I, you know, I got over it really last year. How did Uh, you get over it? When I was at the wake, Congressman Murphy, Jack Murphy was best friends with my dad. He's no longer a congressman, but my dad was a big political guy and he ran a lot of different campaigns for Jack Murphy, seven terms, Mayor Beam for a term, and um, even RFK, he ran his New York uh, campaign. So he was, uh, he, we, we had a lot of political, he had a lot of political friends. Well, Jack Murphy was at the wake, and uh, I had a heart-to-heart with him. And uh, he, he, he really told me, look, there were, your, your dad was a victim of random bad luck. He wasn't the victim of self-perpetuated luck or his own, you know, detri- what I call detrimental luck. Uh, this was just, it happens, he said. Some people uh, get bad luck in the form of health disorders. Your dad just happened and his warehouse burnt down. And uh, so he had, it forced me to really rethink because up until that time, Barnish, I, I blamed my father for the f- financial circumstances you know, even, you know, at the age of 52, I was still blaming on 53 now. So that uh, Jack Murphy really made me think about the other side of the coin and made me really ponder uh, my, my belief system with respect to my dad. And, uh, and that's that's really how I got over it. I, I, I reconciled that, you know, hey, I do all this research and I talk about random good luck and random bad luck and detrimental good luck and opportunity good luck. Uh, bad, detrimental bad luck and opportunity good luck and here I completely missed that with my dad it was he was just a victim of random bad luck and once I once I reconciled that I said you know I, I, it's not my it was my dad's fault uh, so I got over it and I felt better about it afterwards it's amazing how we harbor these emotions you know stemming from childhood we it's sometimes subconscious for you it seems it was very conscious uh, but yet there are other things that happen to us that we don't we don't necessarily attribute to how we feel today about certain things. But there's such a psychology, a psychological layer to how we manage our money and think about money. Um, and so your your story really, I think, will resonate for a lot of listeners. Yeah, it's it is um, really, you know, the, what our what we go through as a child, I believe the habits that our parents teach us. Uh, the experiences that we have as, as a child that really form our adult lives. And, and you know, that money is just a piece of the, the puzzle, but it is, it is a big piece. It is. It is. Well, not to keep on a down note, but I do want to talk a little bit about failure. What is a failure that you experienced with your money that really impacted you? Uh, maybe not necessarily it didn't deplete your savings account, but it was important. It was an important lesson that you took uh, from that. Yeah, that, that that would be going back to 2000 to 2004. I, I prior to that, I was a partner in a pretty good size, very very successful CPA firm. Uh, we had a lot of big clients like Revlon and Merck. Um, we, we did a lot of corporate tax work. Very successful, and we were doing very well. Uh, but one of my clients, uh, I had done, um, a, 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 it's called an earnings and profit study for, and uh, they actually wanted to hire me because they were selling a big part of their business. They were going to have $100 million, and they wanted to uh, deploy that somehow. So they asked me to come on board as a CFO uh, of the company, and I, and I did. 
and um, I, what happened was they ended up doing a dividend uh, distribution, and most of that money went away uh, back to the owners. And and so we had this a couple of startups that I ended up t- uh, I took over one of the startups, and uh, and it took four years, but we failed. Uh, we went through about three million dollars. And the CEO of the company just shut it down. He said, well, I'm not investing any more money. Uh, and, um, and and that was devastating to me because the roots to that tree were very deep for me. It was me and, and my, the, the CEO of the company, of the startup company. We were traveling all over the place and we were having success, but we ran out of money. And uh, the investor said, we're, not, we're just not going to invest any more money. And... Um, Boy, it was devastating. Uh, it took me years to get over that, uh, you know. And 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 so, but I'll tell you what what I learned from it. I really learned two things from that experience, and it's always have a majority control of any business that you're in. Uh, if somebody else is pulling the strings, then um, you're at their whim. No matter what great job you do. They have. They might have another agenda, that's not in line with yours. So always have control over whatever business that you're starting or going into. And the other thing is pick your partners very carefully. Uh, the the partners that that I had, one of them was outstanding, but you know the rest weren't, and they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and uh, that's why we ha- had to keep going back to the till for more money. Yeah, I mean, they say don't ever get into business with family or friends for that reason. Yeah, it's it's an emotion. It's an emotional thing mm. when these are people that you know, and uh, whenever emotion is involved, you're absolutely right. You you make the wrong decision usually. Right. It's it ends up being an irrational relationship. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. I, I think um, it's nice to hear you're on the other side now. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing I'm, very well. I took the lesson and. I ended up uh, purchasing this CPA firm that I'm running uh, because I, I would be in control of it and I would control my destiny. And I felt I was uh, good enough where uh, my, my business background could, you know, help make me successful. And, uh, and I'm glad I did it because here I am. I'm still standing. So would that be something that you might call your so money moment? Because that's my next question. Um, a time in your life that you reflect upon with a lot of pride, a financial moment. When I wrote Rich Habits, I had never written a book before and I didn't even know how to go about it. Uh, and, um, you know, I mentioned before to you that I'm self-published. So, uh, you know, I didn't have a traditional publisher to lean on to help guide me in this process. So it was a lot of trial and error and making mistakes and failing and, and falling down and getting back up. Uh, but and I invested quite you know quite a bit of my own money in, in getting these books out, probably in the neighborhood of a hundred thousand uh, dollars. I must have given away about twenty thousand dollars worth of books, to be honest with you, to different high schools and colleges. And um, so, uh, but I kept at it. I was pursuing this because I really had a passion for it, and I found out this is why you got to try new things in life. I found out I was a good writer. I, for some reason, I could write. Uh, I never knew that. And, uh, and so that investment in myself, that $100,000 investment in myself, is the best money I ever spent uh, because it exposed me to 
superstars like you and Jack Canfield and Dave Ramsey and and oh, there's, I can go on and on, but we don't have enough time. There's so many people I run into that are just outstanding individuals. And and the interesting thing that I found is that the when you associate with other successful people, they want to help you. They're not. They're not. They don't have an agenda. They, I, I, actually, I think they do. Their agenda is to help you, is to mentor you, to do whatever they can to make your life better. And so I am so glad that I pursued this. This and invested in myself and in this book because it exposed me to so many intangibles that um, it's going to pay dividends for the rest of my life. Can I ask how you needed, why $100,000? Because I think that is not necessarily how much you need to spend, right, to self-publish successfully. There are probably people listening to this going, well, there goes my dreams of self-publishing. I thought I could, you know, but I don't think you need to spend that six figures on a book. No, no. Actually, the the core cost was somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or eight thousand dollars with the self publisher I had chosen. I wanted the best self publisher out there, so that was my choice. I could have gone cheap cheaper if I wanted to, because there's plenty of good ones out there for a lot less money. But I, I wanted. I knew I did. I knew what I didn't know, and they did. They knew the business, so I paid a, a premium for that. Uh, but we're, really, where the cost came in is. Um, uh, go, going out and doing speaking engagements all over the place. These are non-paid speaking engagements. Who's going to pay a first-time author of a book that has a thousand copies out there? So at the time, I was investing all of this money in doing speaking engagements, in traveling. Uh, I hired, uh, you know, people to help me do certain things. I helped get the website. I wanted a website that was outstanding, and that cost me ten thousand dollars. Uh, I wanted the best uh, person to help me uh, promote my book, and that cost me another, you know, twenty thousand, twenty-five thousand dollars. So it, it wasn't all at once; it was over, you know, a four or five-year period. Uh, but these costs add up, and I'm an accountant, so of course I track everything. <laughs> and it, you deduct everything. Well, you know, part of it, you, yeah, you can deduct. Part of it, it's just a, you know, some cost that you capitalize. But I really. Uh, and that, that's a good point too. You know, it, it, there is some benefit, tax benefits to you know pursuing something like this. So, but my my point is that you, you know, you have to uh, look at it uh, the hundred thousand in terms of you know the, the twenty thousand dollars in books I gave away. That's that's an, um, you have to include that. So there there's a lot of variables. Not everybody has to do that to be a successful author, uh, and. You can you can sell a million copies if if uh, you know if if it catches on and and you know the the book resonates uh, and you're doing certain things right like getting media attention uh, you can sell a lot of a lot of books you just uh, actually someone put it to me this way uh, David Chilton who is the author of the Wealthy Barber he told me he said Tom writing a book is like the first serve in tennis the rest of the match is promoting it. Yes. And that's where the cost comes in, promoting your book and, and giving out books and, and doing uh, mailers. I mean, I must have mailed out 2,000 books to uh, newspaper, newspaper book editors. So there's a lot of costs involved, if, if, uh, oh, but it's over the long haul. And, and, but it's an investment in yourself. So, you know, it's not, it's not $100,000. It could be you can do it, you know, on, for $5,000. Right. Yeah, getting it in the right hands is really important. And I agree with you. It's 10% 
content and it's 90% marketing, unfortunately. And I gave a keynote at the Financial Bloggers Conference last fall about how my first book was really a pivoting, a pivotal point in my career. I feel like things went from good to great. So maybe that would, and, and funny enough, the book was called You're So Money. Mm-hmm. And it was my so money moment because it was my first kind of flirtation with being entrepreneurial. And, you know, I had a nine to five, but I wanted to write a book and I wrote it and it really did take on a life of its own. Success, I found, is a process and writing a book is no different. It's a process of uh, getting the uh, media attention and getting and promoting your book. You, ha- you can't you can't go on on uh, Oprah and then sit back and say, well, here, you know, I don't have to do anything else. It's it's about getting those singles every single day. And then every now and then you get up at bat and you get to you get a shot at hitting a home run. Uh, so th- those home runs are, you know, rare breed. Uh, and you just you're in it. You're in it. For sure, you're in it for the home runs, but it's the singles and it's the the walks uh, that get you moving ahead and moving forward and meeting people like you, uh, like Robin Sharma, who I just met. You know, it's these Jack Canfield, all these people. They they you meet them along your journey, but you have to do certain things every single day, and you build these relationships, and then they translate ultimately into book sales. Well, speaking of habits and. It sounds like you have some good daily habits. I want to learn more about your financial habits. And actually, we just have time for one. So if there's one financial habit that you perform consciously um, that necessarily helps you take your finances from good to great, what share that with us. What is it? Yeah, my, my wife and I, and this is both of us are really a team on this. We we are We get our our joy out of life from hanging out with our friends and our family. Um, so we have a very low cost of living. At least I think it's low in New Jersey. It's probably $7,000 a month. Most of my clients are in the 10000 to $12,000 range a month. Uh, and so we live our lives in moderation. Uh, and we hardly use personal credit cards for ordinary living expenses. Uh, that, that we, you know, when we started out, we had no choice. We had to. Uh, but we quickly tried to pay them off, and then we we got rid of that poverty habit as, as fast as we could because it, it you, you you know if you use credit cards and you're not uh, conscientious about it, you can find yourself in a big hole. Uh, so you know we just try and live our lives moderately, a, a low uh, cost of living, and just enjoy the moments in life, not necessarily the things. So. In summary, your daily or your financial fix or your habit is to enjoy the little things. Yeah, enjoy the things that don't require spending money. Live below your means. Uh, spending money is not going to make you happy. It's it's just you know it's just money out the door. It's sunk cost. All right, this is the last I like to call the lightning round of so money. And so I'm going to throw out some questions. First thing that comes to your mind, Tom, I want you to spit it out. Okay. Okay. All right. My relationship with money today is best described as much improved. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cheers to that. If I won the lottery tomorrow, say a hundred million dollars, I would I would write and speak full time. I would do what I love to do full time and um, not what I have to do. 
The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. The one thing that I spend money on that makes my life easier. Um, well, that's a good one. You got me on that one. I don't know. I would, uh, I would have to say my wife because when I spend money on my wife and if she, if she's happy, it makes me happy. I love it. Happy wife, happy life. I'm going to tell that to my husband. <laughs> um, my biggest guilty pleasure that I spend probably too much money on, but I'm going to reveal it now is cigars. 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 What kind of cigars? Well, my favorite is El Rey Del Mundo. Mm. Uh, I found a new cigar that JR Tobacco manufactures that I love. Uh, so it, it's probably my, it's my poverty habit, but it's not so, it's, it's not a poor thing. It's, it's expensive. I bet. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is. Oh, to live below your means. I wish somebody somewhere told me that. I mean, everyone, everywhere I was surrounded was wealthy people. We were poor, but everybody was wealthy. So uh, that never, that topic never came up. Yeah. One thing my parents um, insisted on us rem you know, realizing and re reminded us of also was that just when you think you don't have enough or you want more, or you feel like you have less than is realize that there are millions of people who have a lot less than you do. It's hard to realize that when you're living in a community where people always have more than you do. And so when I was younger, we lived in a community that was far wealthier than we were, you know, as a, as a household. And I went to school where kids were, had BMWs and Mercedes. I took the bus. It wasn't really hard for me because I was old enough to realize that money doesn't make you better as a person, but I had a five-year-old brother at the time who was still very much, um, you know, in, easily influenced by material things. And so my parents literally moved, they moved out of state back to where they were originally from to raise my brother because they thought it was just a lot more down to earth and in a community that was more diverse where he could see those who had more than and less than. And there was a relativity to his financial world. And um, because they just saw how he was getting ruined, you know, living in this environment where kids were coming to school with the newest gadgets and this and that. And my brother assuming that he had to have all these things and that he was too young to understand why he could not. And so they, they literally moved. And I think that was um, a really bold and drastic thing to do but i think it, it ended up being the for the better well you you have really great parents mentor parents and you you're really blessed because um you know for them to do something like that that that's i mean it's if parents are often the only shot we have at having a mentor in life and and so if you have parents that are that are really focused on the kids like that boy it, it certainly puts you ahead of the curve in life it was hard, you know, it was, sacrifice, it was a sacrifice, but sometimes the best things are masked as, you know, major trade-offs, but they, in the long run, will prove themselves. And finally, I'm so money because... I, I now know how rich people get rich and stay rich. And you've shared it with the world, and we thank you for it. Thank you so much, Tom Corley. Tell us where we can find more about you and your great work. Uh, well, for news, they, 
uh, they could go on uh, richhabits.net. Um, you can get all my research articles are on there. I usually write two to three a week. And uh, you can get free ebooks, free reports to download, all my media interviews, and of course the books you can get there too. Well, that we will do. Thank you so much, Tom. And I wish you continued success in the new year. Thank you, Farnoosh. I appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about Tom, check out his website, richhabits.net. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Rich Habits. His two most prominent books are entitled Rich Habits, The Daily Success Habits of Wealthy Individuals, and Rich Kids, How to Raise Our Children to Be Happy and Successful in Life. I've got all the links for where to find Tom at somoneypodcast.com. There you can also find the transcript, the comments from this episode, and all other episodes. And please keep your questions coming. I love hearing from you. Go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and submit your question or your comment, and I try to answer as many as I can the following weekend. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope your day is so money.